Scripture shapes the lives of millions of people around the world. Yet scriptures, both the Bible and the Quran, only gain meaning when they are interpreted by the human mind. Minding Scripture, a podcast from the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, explores the meeting of reason with the scriptures of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. My name is Gabriel Said Reynolds, Professor of Islamic Studies and Theology. I should be able to get that straight in the World Religions World Church Program at Notre Dame. It is really great to be joined today by special guest Matt Fred. Hello, Matt. G'day. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Matt is Catholic and Australian, an author, podcaster, and university professor. He has written and contributed to numerous books, including Does God Exist? A Socratic Dialogue on the Five Ways of Thomas Aquinas. Matt earned his undergraduate and graduate degrees in philosophy from Holy Apostles College and Seminary, where he now teaches. And he is also host of the super successful podcast, Pints with Aquinas, of which I am fan number one. Thank you so much for being with us, Matt. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. It's just awesome to get a chance to speak with you. And we're going to speak a little bit about the Gospel of John Mm. today, the fourth gospel, and maybe bring in some insights um, from from Thomas Aquinas. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting this chance to exchange some some ideas with you. Um, I I thought we'd start with Aquinas, actually, and just get to know you a little bit better um, for our listeners of Minding Scripture. So, um, you know, the, the podcast has this brilliant uh, name, Pints with Aquinas, and I know you um, discuss many different uh, topics and range sort of broadly and questions of theology and philosophy. Um, but I think it started with Thomas. And so I'm just wondering, mm-hmm. you know, what got you interested in, in Thomas? Why, why did you begin there? Sure. Well, first of all, I converted to Catholicism or perhaps I reverted to Catholicism at the age of 17, prior to which I was an agnostic or atheist, depending on the mood I was in. Uh, But at the age of 17, I was invited to World Youth Day in Rome, Italy, and it was there I encountered the person of Jesus Christ. And, you know, it was a radical transformation. And when I came back, I was hunger. I was hungry for, rather, for for, for knowledge uh, about this Jesus Christ, about the church he founded. And so during, when I took my master's degree, it, uh, it, the concentration was Thomistic philosophy. And so it was there that I delved into the works of Thomas Aquinas. I just found him uh, yeah, a, a brilliant mind who elucidated the Catholic faith very convincingly. I think one of the things that um, attracts people to Thomas is the interplay between this very rational, reasonable, sometimes challenge, challenging um, thinker but someone who also had a deep spirituality. That's something I didn't appreciate initially. I mean, my field, as you know, is is not um, Catholic theology, although I'm a Catholic. My field is Islamic studies, so I sort of feel like an outsider getting to know Thomas. And uh, it's only in recent years where I've come to appreciate that he has this deep spirituality, and um, he was not just a nerd, um, and he had a great interest in, in, in not just interest, I mean, isn't it right that the the Bible was sort of the one book he kept on his desk, something like that? Well, I mean, he was, his job was uh, the master of the sacred page at the University of Paris. And so he actually has written a great deal. Um, his university lectures, for example, are pretty highbrow. Um, right. he, he's written commentaries on Matthew and John and many of the works of St. Paul, St. Peter, etc. And you can't read his works like, the Summa Theologiae, for example, every point he makes, he backs up with Scripture. It's really remarkable, especially right. given the fact that he didn't have Google 
at his fingertips like we do, you know. And it helps us remember that Scripture nourishes the whole venture of theology. Amen. That we're not just out there, I don't know, thinking thinking independently or completely yes. independently about God in light of nature or something, but we're nourished by, by Scripture. That's a really... And I, th- I think this is a trap that people like myself who are very much into philosophy can fall into. It's easy to sit back in your armchair and philosophize about God and what he might be like and what how he might act and what he might do given the basic attributes of God, right. such as his omniscience and omnipotence right. and omnibenevolence. Right. But it's scripture which informs our thinking about God first and foremost, not our philosophical reflections. Right. That's such an important reminder, I think, especially for the community of Catholics. Uh, I remember some experiences meeting evangelical Protestants in my own faith journey and hearing them quote scripture regularly and thinking, wow, this is strange. Like, why are they so into the Bible? And uh, sometimes Catholics joke about it. You know, there are lots of jokes that, well, um, I don't need to know the Bible that well. I'm a Catholic or something like that. The Mm. jokes are better, but Anyway, yeah, it's sad though, isn't it, that we've right people have said those sorts of things, right? Right. We recently made a development in our undergraduate curriculum in the theology department at Notre Dame, where in addition to our foundations course that has a basic introduction to the Bible, we now require majors to do both Old Testament and New Testament. That might seem surprising that that wasn't the case already, but there was really an emphasis on. Uh, in in the past on the tradition of the great masters of theology, and we're really trying to build up um, a focus on on scripture as well. So that's good news. Yeah, fantastic. Well, what about what about the um, the way in which Thomas engaged with the Bible? Um, you already mentioned some of his you know he has a number of different um, works in which he in, in addition to the Summa Theologiae where he engages explicitly in biblical commentary. Uh, what is distinctive, would you say? Um, what's attractive about the way he reads the Bible? Well, what, what's attractive about Thomas Aquinas, generally speaking, is that um, he's very logical. He do, you'd never get the sense that you're being manipulated. He doesn't use flowery rhetoric. Right. Um, I, I've often said that St. Augustine is beautiful like a garden is beautiful, whereas Aquinas is beautiful like a... I don't know, a uh, uh, board game instruction manual is beautiful. Like okay. uh, there is okay. a beauty to it. You, know, you you think about what it takes to write uh, an instruction manual. Like there are no words that are wasted. It is very clear. The, the entire point is not to sound clever, um, you know, but just to tell you exactly what needs to be said. And when you read Aquinas, you just get the sense that he can convey in a single page what other theologians take books to say. Um, he very rarely refers to himself. I actually was reading a bit from the gospel, his commentary on the Gospel of John last night, and I think it was the first time that I ever saw him say, I. He said, I think. Um, and this is, this is very unusual. He very often, obviously, appeals to tradition and sacred scripture. He writes syllogistically. Okay. Um, so it's very cleansing for the mind, especially in our modern era where we are taught the lie that truth is entirely subjective. Um, so that's lovely. And he, he's a big fan of lists. Okay. So whenever you read Thomas, very often he'll say something like, you know, uh, John says this for three reasons. 
And then he'll give one, the first reason, and he'll say, and this for five reasons. You're like, okay, here we go. <laughs> and I, I just love that kind of linear way of thinking. Um, so if you're going to pick up a commentary of the Gospels from Thomas Aquinas, don't expect to get very heartwarming yes. language or okay. insights about how you can practically pray better or live your best life or any yes, of this yes. sort of stuff. Um, he's just very concerned about teaching the Catholic faith straightforwardly. And to some people, you know, they don't appreciate that. They think he sounds a little bit like a robot. They wonder if there is a heartbeat behind these words. But right. I really appreciate it. It's almost like you have to kind of um, acclimatize, might not be the right word, but kind of accustom yourself to how he writes. But then once once you've, once you've you kind of start tracking with him, it's it's really profound, I think. Right. Right. It makes me think of this sort of feedback or maybe just the impressions that I get as an instructor when speaking with our undergraduate students at Notre Dame in regard to theology. I think a lot of them expect theology to be sort of the easy class in their schedule. <laughs> and I, I don't deal much with Thomas in my, my classes. I do a lot of Muslim-Christian relations. But they, they do sort of assume, you know, theology is, I mean, a bit as you alluded to, about spirituality and learning to love, loving God, loving neighbor, loving everyone, loving everything. Uh, but um, it's a serious science of study. Right, and it's, 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 right. it's an objective one. I think in our day and age, people mm-hmm. think of religion as they do of different cultures. And just like you wouldn't say the Australian culture is wrong, right? you would just say, well, it's different and there are things we can appreciate about it. And there's this sort of name for this, it's religious indifferentism, where we say, well, all religions yes. are basically the same, and uh, this is not at all the case, and uh, Aquinas knows that, and yeah, and, and what's other, what else is interesting about him is, depending on who he's writing to will depend on how he argues. So if he's going to argue against Muslims, he doesn't quote sacred scripture, because he knows that right. the Muslim right. doesn't accept sacred scripture. Yeah. Right, right. Right, so they, or, yeah. or with the Jews in his in his Summa Contra Gentiles, for example. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I also the one text that I know a bit of Thomas is, uh, in fact, a, a work he wrote. It's called De Rationibus Fidei on the reasons mm-hmm. for the faith, specifically in order to address Muslim criticisms of Christianity. And he he alludes to Peter, the letter of Peter, in the beginning, where he says, "Listen, you you should always have reasons for the hope that was in is within you." That sort of a, a, a exhortation for apologetics but other than that as far as i can remember there's there's no scripture there yeah well when he does refer to scripture in the summa or elsewhere uh does he have um i don't know it sounds sort of cheesy to say does thomas have a favorite biblical book but does thomas have a favorite biblical book i wouldn't say so no um it's remarkable just from how many books he draws from when he makes his point um I'm unfamiliar with it, Uh, unfamiliar if he did have a favorite book or not. He certainly has different things to say about different books and what different books, like for example, like I said, John's Gospel, he says, you know, John is different to Matthew, Mark, and Luke in this respect. And so this is what we can learn from John. So he certainly points out, you know, the, what can be gained from certain books. Right, right. You know, what was, uh, you probably know this, but, um, he died in a Cistercian monastery, and this was after you know he said, "All that I have written is straw." Yes. When he put down the pen, and the Summa Theologiae had to be uh, completed by his uh, secretary. 
that on his deathbed he was asked to give a commentary on the Song of Songs, which is which which we don't have. Uh, that's my understanding. Okay. Um, but anyway, that, I just find that remarkable. I would love to get my hands on that. Yes, yes. And the, the I mean, your point that he refers to to the various books of Scripture in advancing his arguments is an important reminder that you know we have a canon of Scripture in the Catholic tradition and um, and most Christian traditions, they differ slightly in regard to the Old Testament. Um, but for Jews and Muslims, they're a canon of um, uh, you know, what, books that are considered to be revealed. And uh, they have a certain status in the theological science that, um, and it's it sort of, although people tend to have personal preferences in terms of style or theme or things like that, but in terms of the ability for Scripture to nourish our theological imagination, it's all good, it's all important. So, mm-hmm. Well, um, why don't we turn to uh, the Gospel of John in particular? I'm sort of going to shift very awkwardly just to speaking <laughs> about John. We will return at some point, I think, to what Thomas has to say about John, or maybe you'll just integrate thoughts about that as we go along. But we wanted to focus on John because, you know, um, and you sort of pointed this out. It's a distinct, it's a distinct gospel. Uh, this, the other Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered to be the synoptic gospel, so they can be held side to side and sort of looked at a glance uh, at together. Uh, whereas John has particular style. Um, you know, sometimes uh, when I speak with my colleagues who do critical uh, scholarship on the gospels, they'll point out, well, John is probably later. Mm-hmm. And uh, their questions about its authorship and um, their disputes about its usefulness for, uh, say, the quest for the historical Jesus. But for, from a Christian perspective, it, it's it's a gospel with apostolic authority, and um, it just just as important as the other three. Um, but it is different, so uh, maybe we'll just start there. Uh, yeah, what, what do you find? Um, valuable, uh, unique about John? What do you personally like about the Gospel of John? Yeah, it's um, it's the most beautifully written, I think. It's the one I find myself naturally attracted to. Mm-hmm. Um, Aquinas actually does say that John, di- uh, John wrote his Gospel last and was refuting certain heresies that had sprung up, okay. um, which is why his go- one of the reasons his Gospel is more lofty than the others. Yes. Um, so I like that. Um, it's rich in theology and philosophy, obviously, you know, when you consider how John begins his gospel to how the synoptics begin theirs, uh, Aquinas points out that John is described as to his symbol, which is an eagle, right? You know, the other three evangelists, uh, symbolized by animals that walk on the ground, uh, a, a man, bull, lion, uh, but Aquinas says that John flies like an eagle above the cloud of human weakness and looks upon the light of unchanging truth with the most lofty and firm eyes of the heart. So it's it feels more mystical, more contemplative. That is beautiful. We could stop there. <laughs> but let's not. <laughs> let's keep going. Well, I... I, um, I, I should probably read more scripture generally, but I... Um, I began to read more, at least, just in my own um, my own spiritual journey, when I uh, got connected with the Evangelical Protestant uh, Fellowship in college, 
and I started um, started getting to know the New Testament better, especially. And it seemed in those circles like um, John was sort of the best gospel. Uh, however strange it is to have a best gospel, and uh, you know the focus on on belief in Jesus's message in John seemed to strike a chord with that audience. Um, I I almost got the impression that for for some in the evangelical Protestant world, like if you get John down, I don't know. I think of the image of the guy, and we'll get to this verse specifically, but the guy with a T-shirt that has John three sixteen on it, mm-hmm. which almost sort of implies like. This is what you need to know. If you know John three sixteen and you believe in Jesus, then that that's it. Like everything, everything's settled. Um, so I, I I don't know if you have general thoughts about that um, that way of, of seeing John is principally about belief. Um, how would a Catholic respond to that sort of idea? To what the John three sixteen? Yeah, and the notion that John is basically about belief in Jesus. Just this sort of personal, intimate relationship between you and Jesus. I think I would say, and Aquinas says in his commentary, that um, John emphasizes the divinity of Christ more than the others. Um, So in that sense, I would agree, perhaps, that it's more about belief. Um, Listen to this little um, excerpt from Aquinas. He, he He compares and contrasts John with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's very short. He says, they, meaning the synoptics, announced Christ, the Son of God, born in time, but John presents him existing from eternity. They show him suddenly appearing among men, but John says that he always existed with the Father, and the Word was with God, it says, you know. The others, the synoptics, show him as a man, but John says that he is God. The others say he lives with men, but John says that he has always been with the Father. So, you know, as I say, it does very. It starts out on this very lofty plane, um, and deep philosophy and theology showing that Christ has always existed with the Father. That the Father doesn't generate the Son in time. Um, right. The, right. You know. So, uh, what would you say to a critic who would observe that? Well, you have this high Christology in John, the pre-existence of Christ. Um, the divinity of Christ, clearly, as you alluded to, John one one, the famous, you know, um, in the, the the opening of the prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, but you you sometimes hear that well, this comes in John, which is written towards the end of the first century, and it shows that um, the Christian community sort of made up the idea of Christ's divinity later on. Um, and the synoptics show us that this was not the original idea and was not taught by Jesus himself. Yeah, I would say there are different emphases in the Gospels, but it's not at all the case that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't point to the divinity of Christ, even if you want to look at things like in... Uh, you know, in the in the the boat in, in the boat, Matthew fourteen thirty three, where it says, you know, they 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 bowed down and worshipped him, mm. and there's this reference to Christ being the Son of Man, and often when a sort of layman reads that, and you think to yourself, okay, they're referring to Christ's uh, humanity, but there's been a lot of work done on this that has showed actually that we're pointing to the divinity of Christ. Mm. This, this is a reference drawing to, on Daniel or. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would say there is an emphasis on Christ's divinity, but it's not true to say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't also. 
something I I hear in um, just my world of Muslim Christian relations, Quranic studies, Islamic studies, uh, is and it probably this idea probably exists elsewhere too. But um, you know, the church divinizes or deifies Jesus. This is the idea that's advanced sometimes. Uh, sometimes it gets really crude in the notion that it w- well, it was Constantine and sort of the Byzantine imperial mm-hmm. machine. <laughs> which at the Council of Nicaea in 325 makes Jesus a god. Uh, I think that that's, that's a stubborn idea. I mean, uh, for Muslims, it's very appealing because the Islamic teaching is that uh, Jesus was a man, a prophet, but not divine. Um, you hear it also from s- sort of secular circles. And, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, if it were the case that Christ's divinity was sort of um, established or invented at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. I think, I think that's it, yeah. Then we, then it wouldn't really make sense that when you read the church fathers like Ignatius of Antioch, um, uh, Irenaeus, uh, Clement of Alexandria, right. many others who were writing in the second century, all explicitly referring to his divinity, you know. Yes. This is the problem. I mean, there's a lot of Protestants. Well, not not so much these days, but the sort of Jack Chick anti-Catholic Protestants of the past would say that many of these Catholic inventions began to arise after um, Nicaea. But if that were the case, you wouldn't be able to see it prior to that, or at least so strongly. But you do when you read the Church Fathers prior to 325. I mean, you see things like belief in the Eucharist, prayers to the saints. Um, you know, Jesus' divinity, these sorts of things. Right, right. Well, a, a little bit further along in the prologue, we're, we're not going to get very far in John, I think, to, in our conversation today. I'm really just going to... It's amazing how much ink he spends just on a couple of words. I think that's the other thing. You know, you asked me earlier about what I had yes. to say about Thomas Aquinas and his commentaries and this sort of thing. But, you know, he'll spend pages and pages on like a sentence. or a, you know. Right, right. Yeah, um, yeah, med- meditating on, yeah, the right, the the possible possible shades of meaning, layers of meaning, uh, senses. I uh, just a couple of verses later in John one, um, we have this this phrase in verses four and five, and which we we're reading in my family. We're recording this during the season of Advent, hmm. though it will come out later. But um, you know, before we light an Advent cal- calendar. What has come into being in him was life, life that was the light of men. Mm. And light shines in darkness, and darkness could not overcome it. Mm. So beautiful, beautiful passage. And um, so, uh, but, but I wanted to ask about your, your thoughts about this image, which is with this use of symbolic language that's very distinctive in John of light and darkness. Yeah. Uh, the word worlds doesn't appear in these two verses, but um, it does, you know, later on, um, mm-hmm. John will speak of the devil as the, the prince of this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is there an image in the Gospel of John as the world of, of as a place of darkness? Um, this, I don't know if it's a dualism, but that the world is fundamentally uh, broken, fallen. Um, yeah, and I'd also be interested in, in your thoughts about about that idea generally. Um, so, what what is how do you read John in that regard, and and what else would you say about the world as a place of darkness? 
Yeah, so my understanding is that when Scripture speaks of the world, it's either referring to the world which God made, which is good, mm-hmm. uh, but it could also be referring to the sort of fallen, fallenness of the world of which the devil is the prince. And so we do live in a fallen world. Uh, we, ha- we do have original sin. We do have concupiscence. Um, which is the sort of disordered desires that are pulling us in all sorts of directions. We sometimes know the good, but choose not to pursue it, contrary to Socrates. Um, and this idea that we preferred the darkness, you know, that those those who live lives of sin prefer the darkness, right. lest the light expose it. I think this is very profound and very accurate and something we have to be on guard against. Um, we are naturally fallen, separated from God. If it were not for the action of Christ, we would be damned. Um, and it's why we need Christ to enlighten us, um, to give us his grace so that we can be fit for eternal life. Right. I, I hear sometimes... And and just, yeah. sorry to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. Just, just one final, final point. I, I really do think as the sort of fog of universalism has entered into the church... You know, no one has seemed to have come out and said, you know, basically everyone goes to heaven. But there's this sort of shapeless in, fog. In the, in the, among Catholic theologians, mm-hmm. maybe. But yeah. we've had De- David Bentley Hart on this program. And right. he, of course, famously and, has... And among that. him, yes, him too, who is who I think um, believes something contrary to the Scripture. I think he believes a different gospel. But if if you read the plain words of Scripture... You know, many will go to hell and the few will be saved. It's amazing to me that we've somehow inverted that such now that we say that many will be saved and just a few, if any, maybe Judas or Hitler or someone will be lost. But I think if you take a biblical view of it, only when you see the tremendous horror of your own sin can you see the beauty of the cross. And if sin doesn't really matter at the end of the day, then Christ's death and resurrection seems somewhat superfluous, I think. So I hear sometimes that Christianity, because of this dynamic between the fall and salvation or redemption, is just it's just pessimistic, you know? You hear this sometimes, and that... Um, Humans are all sinful. Even little babies are sinful. That's why they need to be baptized to address the problem of original sin. And it just has this really negative anthropology. That yeah. So sometimes this comes up in um, conversations between Muslims and Christians. Muslims have this idea of people being born according to an original instinct. In Arabic, it's called fitra, which is this instinct to be a believer, basically. For most Muslims, that means to be a Muslim. Uh, so I don't know if you have do you have thoughts about that. Is Christianity just too pessimistic somehow? Well, I would say there's pessimism and there's realism, and just because we find something rather negative, it doesn't mean it's not the case. Mm-hmm. Like I at I do not like the idea that it is the case that people will spend eternity in hell. I don't like the idea that if Judas is in hell, it's been what twenty centuries and his hell hasn't even begun yet. I don't like that. Right. Um, I wish it weren't the case, you know. I'd, I'd rather agree with David Bentley Hart. Um, but if I'm going to choose something that seems optimistic but but is in contradiction to sacred scripture or something that 
may appear to many as pessimistic, but is in line with scripture. I have to go with that. Um, so I, I would say it doesn't matter whether or not something seems pessimistic. I think what what matters is, is it what God has revealed to us? Because this is, of course, why God has revealed himself to us in the first place. Thomas Aquinas talks about this in the Summa Contra Gentiles, that mm. you know, it is the case that people could come to know that God exists apart from revelation. Right. Uh, but only after a long time, and there would be many, many errors mixed in. And then you could say, well, it's important that God reveal himself to us so that we don't have to guess. It's pretty astounding when you think about the fact that my grandma, who never went to university, knew more true things about God than Aristotle did uh, because God loves us and reveals himself to us. He desires us to be saved. Um, yeah, so I you know, I, I, I think as, as a Christian we've got to go with what sacred scripture has taught and what the tradition has always affirmed over what we might think, might find um, unpalatable. I was thinking this morning as I was driving into campus at Notre Dame that it's difficult in my conversations with students to communicate that uh, the the business of religion is not um, what's well, not a democracy, but it's also not <laughs> it's not wishful thinking, uh, and you have to deal with with um, uh, with divine truth, which um, makes demands, and it's it's the whole thing is difficult. So I think that's that's a good reminder. Uh, okay, I want to pick up on the grandma point and Thomas, but I think <laughs> now is a good time to take take a brief break. So, friends, if you're listening, um, please also take a moment uh, to review and rate Minding Scripture, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Minding Scripture. Hey, Matt, I, I wanted to pick up on a point um, uh, that you made uh, towards the end of the first segment. And I'm sort of pivoting, but you, you referred to um, how awesome it is that one's grandmother, who may not have gone to to higher education, will know more than uh, you know a philosopher from the pagan mm-hmm. era in ancient Greece, say, and um, I just wanted to follow up with that. A question that sort of bothers me is, you know, sometimes we read Thomas and we see how brilliant his thinking is. And it can uh, make one feel a bit intimidated. And I, I wonder if you've thought through this. I mean, do you really do, do you need to know a lot about God? Do you need to understand, I don't know, just just choose one mystery of the faith. Do you need to understand the Trinity, at least sort of? Okay. Uh, I mean, is that part of being a Christian? Um, does that is that making sense at all? Like, do you just need a very simple, basic faith? How much do you need to know to be a Christian? I, I forget if it was Chesterton or not who said something to the effect of, you know, if you are, uh, he made this comparison to a little mouse that can bathe in the shallow waters of uh, a river, uh, but this river being big enough for an elephant to to trounce through, you know, yes. and I think that's true. You know, somebody could be born with mental deficiencies, uh, perhaps they have Down syndrome, right? Um, but be baptized and incorporated into the body of Christ and be saved. 
but certainly we cannot deny anything that God has revealed to us, even if we don't fully understand it. So if I don't fully understand the Trinity, which of course is not fully understandable anyway, but I know that I have to accept that God is triune in order right. to be saved, and I deny that, then I won't be saved. But no, I certainly don't have to be, thank God, very intelligent and understand these mysteries in great detail in order to be saved. But God in his graciousness has revealed these truths to us, and that's why I mentioned a moment ago that my my grandma can know more about God than Aristotle. Obviously, she wasn't as brilliant as Aristotle, uh, but, but she can know more about God than Aristotle because God has revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself, of course, through nature, which is how Aristotle came to accept the existence of God. Um, but he's revealed himself through the prophets and finally through Jesus Christ. This is something I uh, that comes up in our discussions as a faculty at Notre Dame in regard to the well, not only in the theology department but throughout the university. And we have this requirement that there are two courses of theology you have to do. It used to be four. Uh, we'll get back there. Um, and in thinking about the requirement, there are different justifications. I, I always tell my students, well, to, to study theology is to study God, mm. and um, it's a path to not only human flourishing in this life, but salvation in the next. Yes. Um, but at the same time, you know, you don't have to get it all. You don't need to, you don't need to be a total theology nerd. Right. Um, without, without God's revelation, theology wouldn't be a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we can study what God has revealed about himself because he's revealed those things about him. Thomas Aquinas would say, and obviously the church agrees, that through philosophy we can come to know things about God. We can come to know apart from faith that right. God exists, that he's one, and these sorts of things. Um, but because he has revealed himself, you know, theology is possible. Right. Friends, we're speaking with Matt Fred, um, host of Pints with Aquinas, and we're discussing the Gospel of John and uh, Thomas Aquinas, although I keep uh, going onto tangents and, and, and we're going further afield. But now oh. I'm going to bring us back to the Gospel of John. Oh. We spoke a bit about John 1. I'm going to turn to John 3. Okay. Um, and just to, to um, bring up the um, one of those scenes in John's gospel that uh, Bible movies try to capture um, the scene of of the Pharisee Nicodemus coming to see mm. Jesus at night. So just in the opening of John 3 there we read, read uh, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, this is Nicodemus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Gosh, that that line at the end in verse 5 sort of returns to your point about the question of salvation. Mm. but do you have, maybe we'll just start with your, your, your thoughts about this passage, you know, the Pharisee coming to Jesus and uh, he, looking for answers. Uh, he, I don't know if he's playing the fool by saying, how can a man be born when he is old or just sort of provoking Jesus to, to elaborate. Um, so, yeah, how, how should we take this? I don't know. 
if you want to refer to Thomas, um, the, how do you show sure. this concept of being born again? Right. The language in John 3 where he says water and spirit is hudatos kai panumatos in Greek. And there is not one church father who interprets Jesus to mean anything other than water baptism, hmm. which is interesting. Um I've done some research into this. I have friends who've done even more research, and they cannot find one church father who, when interpreting this, doesn't think Christ is referring to water baptism. And so the church has always taught that to be born again, uh, one must be baptized. And what's really interesting is the first person to deny this would be Ulrich Zwingli, who said in his work De Baptismo, Uh, I'm paraphrasing, going off memory, but he said something to the effect of, when it comes to uh, the matter of baptismal regeneration, I can only conclude that all of the doctors and fathers have been in error, which is something you have to say if you want to deny uh, the reality of baptismal regeneration. But um, more broadly, and getting back to our pessimistic take i'm joking on the uh, <laughs> on the gospel it is true i mean the, the, god loves us wants us to be saved i think it's uh, first well, i'm forgetting now but um first timothy 2 4 god desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth absolutely it's why he sent his son you know but it is interesting even though uh, 3 16 john 3 16 does encapsulate the gospel i would say god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life um but it also says, you know, two verses later, uh, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Um, so, again, we don't want to whitewash the scriptures to our own liking. Um, we do stand condemned, and that's why we need a savior. In order to be saved, yeah, that presumes that you're condemned, or else there's, you know. Yeah, yeah. And the, the language at the opening of John 3 there about rebirth, although it's connected to, to verses 16 to 18, as you mentioned, is, is sometimes picked up in certain Christian circles as um, uh, sort of an, an example or a, a justification for the experience of this personal mm. conversion to Jesus Christ. Uh, at Halloween recently, I, I feel like there are less and less of these but um, my, one of my kids did get a tract handed out to him along with candy, like here's a Snickers bar and a tract about how to be saved and not go to hell. Mm. Uh, so, and he brought it home and, you know, it's all cute, sort of animated and stuff. But it ends with a sinner's prayer. Um, and uh, so this, this is the, the language of rebirth that's fairly powerful for some people, right? The, the idea that at a certain moment you're condemned and then you have this conversion, which usually doesn't involve baptism, but just saying the sinner's prayer, and then suddenly you're saved. Mm-hmm. And I know there are debates about then can you lose your salvation or not, um, etc. cetera. Uh, and it seems like a neater, cleaner formula than the Catholic sacramental life. Um, but as, as you say, uh, John does seem to be alluding to baptism, um, and uh, I, anyway, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I, I can move on. I'm sort of yeah. No, you're great. This is this is fun. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think again, um, 
something can be cleaner or neater, uh, more optimistic, uh, kind of more palatable, uh, but it doesn't necessarily make it true. Uh, I suppose it would have been neater, cleaner, more optimistic. And by the way, I know this is not what you're espousing, but just kind of in response to those who might put forward this claim, uh, if man had have sinned and God had have forgiven him without the cross, Thomas Aquinas says this is possible. It wasn't um you know, strictly necessary that Christ had to die. Of course, Christ willed that from all eternity, right. and so in that sense it was. Uh, but that would have been neater, cleaner, uh, right. but it's not how God willed it. And so I think we have to bend the knee, our, or our philosophical reflections and opinions have to bend the knee to sacred scripture. Right, right. But certainly, I mean, the church allows for baptism of desire. Thomas Aquinas even addresses this, and I think he refers to St. Jerome, uh, this idea that someone can be saved apart from water baptism because, as the Catechism says, while we are bound to the sacraments, God is not bound, and so God may choose to save somebody apart from the sacramental system. But, um, yeah. Yeah, and on on this question of the, the, the sacramental system and also the mysteries of the faith generally, uh, Thomas has an interesting line in that one text that I know sort of well, the De Rationibus Fidei, yeah. where he says, he's speaking to a fellow Dominican, he says, listen, don't try to prove in any compelling manner the mysteries of the faith, which exceed even the minds of the angels. <laughs> but because they are true, they can also not be proven false. Mm, that's right. He, he probably articulates that in the Summa, or maybe Summa Contra Gentiles as well. Um, no, that's that's spot on, this idea that you know, Christians can come to know, well, anyone can come to know that God exists apart from revelation, but there are things we cannot come to know through philosophy, such as that God is triune. Uh, we probably can't know that angels exist apart from revelation. We cannot know the incarnation except through revelation. We cannot accept the Eucharist except for revelation. But uh, we can show that these things don't contradict reason. Right. Right, and this is where he draws in the line from First Peter, where um, you know Peter says, uh, "Always have your answer ready," and Thomas says, "Yeah." Notice that Peter doesn't say, "Always have your proof ready," but your answer ready. Anyway, he likes, oh, interesting. He picks up on that. I'll have to look at that. I, I just wanted to comment a bit further on uh, John three sixteen, which speaks of um, God's love for the world, um, not only for believers, not only for the righteous, but for the world. Um, I think that's, that's an important important point in that famous verse that we used to see a lot on T-shirts at football games and things. Mm-hmm. Um, Thomas, in his um, commentary on St. John, speaks of um, specifically about this passage, these verses right around 316, about spiritual regeneration, mm. which is a work of grace. Um uh, but it's it's not flipping a switch, it seems, for Thomas. I don't know if this seems right, right to you, that the, you're in a process of constant conversion. Um, you don't, right. uh, you're, you're not just saved at a certain moment and everything is cool thereafter. Um, but you need to continue to, um, uh, to be converted. And in some ways, the fullness of conversion or regeneration only, is only unfolded in, in heaven. Uh, so does, is that is that your reading of Thomas as well, that um, the, the, the Christian life is a constant process of conversion? Right. So uh, 
I think when Protestants speak of salvation, they think of it as something that's happened. Are you saved? Yes, I am. And a Christian can also say that's a Catholic can also say that's the case. But Catholics view uh, salvation because the Bible does as a process. Uh, Saint Paul says, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling." Right. You know, uh, right. it's also said, "You know, we are closer to the salvation than when we first begun." Um, I think what Aquinas might also have in mind is this kind of process of divinization or becoming holy. You know, going off from Aristotle, you know, the idea that one can um, habitually engage in behaviors that are making him more vicious. And so one can be a vicious person, uh, but grace can enlighten him to the fact that God exists and he stands in judgment and needs to be saved. And he can, say, be baptized or call upon the Lord and be saved, but still uh, be vicious in, in many areas and need to grow. You know, if somebody has been looking at pornography since they were eight and are now 40 and then come to Christ, it's not as if those desires, disordered desires for sexual pleasure, just disappear. And so uh, grace is at work there to purify the Christian. And this is why Catholics have always taught in some sort of intermediate state between here and heaven. Mm. Um, If it is the case that I will be saved, and if it is the case that there will be no sin in heaven, nor any desire for sin in heaven, well, goodness, something's going to have to happen prior to that, because I do still sin. I do still desire sin. Right. Um, and so call it purgatory if you want or some sort of purification. It's the final rush of our sanctification if you want. Right, right. Muslims have this notion, which I don't think is exactly the same. I think there may be an important difference, but hmm. nevertheless a related notion that, especially in, in the mainstream Sunni Islamic tradition, um, that you should pray to die a Muslim. Um, it, it and it's it's sort of riffing on a verse in the Quran where um, you're you're called upon to say, "Oh God, make me die a Muslim, make us die Muslims." But there is this notion for Muslims that um, in mainstream Sunni Islam that you should not be so confident of salvation that mm. you lose fear of hell, mm-hmm. and uh, not be so sure of your condemnation that you lose desire for heaven. Mm. So, so somewhere in the middle is the right a place to be. So you continue mm. to strive. I think it's. A, yeah, well, there's something similar doctrine. in Catholic theology. We talk about the sin of presumption hmm. and the sin of despair. And right. so if someone were to ask me, you know, if you were to die now, would you go to heaven? I would say, yes, I think so. Uh, I have a moral certainty of my salvation, but I might be wrong. Um, and I think there are two reasons, and maybe this Muslim view that you're talking about kind of lines up with this somehow, you know, there, are, there are two reasons, at least, I think, of that I, I could be wrong. Number one, I might be fooling myself. I might think that I have this relationship with Christ that I do not have. I might, you know, uh, think that I haven't sinned grievously, but maybe I have. We've all encountered people who are dece- it would seem that are deceiving themselves. They seem like very manipulative people, very hateful people, but they seem completely unaware of that. And if that's true of them, then that could be true of us, and that's kind of terrifying. The second reason is that I may not persevere. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20 is just one of many verses that talks about the fact that Christians can lose their salvation by abandoning the faith, apostatizing, for example. Right, right. There's even a debate in Islamic theology about whether 
when you say I am a Muslim, should you add the phrase inshallah, uh, if God wills? Hmm. Um, and the, I think that it's might very, be a different. very humble way of doing it, I think, you know? Yeah, it's very beautiful. Um, hmm. it, it, it raises a question that actually Benedict XVI brought up in his famous lecture at Regensburg, which is in Islamic theology, does God have the ability to uh, lead you astray from Islam into unbelief? Mm. Um, but that's maybe another show. Mm. I had just two more questions here, and one is really general. Um, there's so much more in John's Gospel, so I just thought I'd give you a chance if you wanted <laughs> to speak about another passage. I mean, there's the raising of Lazarus and John's Gospel and the Bread of Life discourse, very beautiful in John 6. Um, is there another passage of John that is especially meaningful to you or maybe interesting to Thomas, however you want to take that? <sighs> yeah, well, I haven't read through the entire commentary of John's Gospel. I'd, I'd like to make my way through it. Um, certainly when Jesus talks about being the light of the world, um, when he talks about you know out of his heart flow living waters, these sorts of things I find very inspirational. Um, yeah. Um, John 6 is amazing. I remember after my conversion to Christianity when I was 17 years old, coming home and being challenged by my Protestant friends about why it was we thought what we did about the Eucharist. And I up until then, since I hadn't read much of the Bible, would just point to the Last Supper where Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. And by that, Catholics think he meant just what he said. Right. And I hadn't actually read John 6. And so I remember one day very vividly standing in my bedroom and flipping through the Bible and reading John 6 and just being bowled over. He could not have been more clear that we need to eat his body and drink his blood you know, and that his body and blood were fl- uh, were food and drink indeed, these sorts of things. I thought, oh, my goodness, has, has nobody read this, you know? Yes, yes. Um, right, and there's that, there's just a beautiful conversation with the crowds who they, I think they mm. find him at the beginning of John 6, right? They had seen him do the miracle, the multiplication of the loaves, right. and then they track him down. And they're like, you know, well, we did get manna, from Moses, our ancestors. Yeah. <laughs> so can you? what are you going to do? What can you do? And yeah. it prompts this beautiful, beautiful reflection. And I think a, a beautiful thing to, to say to our blessed Lord when we're struggling with, a, with an element of the faith is just what St. Peter said, uh, John 6, 60-something, I forget where Christ looked at his 12. He let the others leave, which is interesting. It's the first time he ever let the crowds leave over a doctrine There was no clarification. He didn't say, you misunderstood me. Because throughout the Gospel of John, people are constantly misunderstanding Christ. You already mentioned John 3, you know, where Nicodemus says, uh, am I to be born again through my mother, you know? Um, But we can think of other examples, you know, where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Um, Whenever Christ is misunderstood in John's Gospel, either John, the Gospel writer, or Jesus clarifies what is meant. Um, so, for example, in that John 3 gospel, right, he says, no, 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 like I'm not talking about actually right, going back right. into your mother. This is the only time, right, where Christ doesn't do that. In fact, he doubles down and doubles down again. And then he's even willing to lose his 12 apostles, yeah, right. the disciples. He turns to them and says, will you leave too? And I think Peter says that lovely, humble thing that we should say when we're struggling with an element of the faith, you know, Lord, where else shall we go? You you alone have the words of eternal life. In other words, I might not know how to fully grasp this right now, 
Uh, I don't fully understand it, but if you say it, then it's true, and so I'm going to accept it. Right. That's beautiful. Um, okay, and it leads us to just one final question, which brings us out of John's Gospel. It, it's just a, 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 a general thought that I wanted to share with you about what we do on Mining Scripture, which is um, interreligious scripture study. Most of our episodes, as our listeners know, um, involve a Muslim, um, sometimes a Muslim and a Jew and a Christian, all three traditions, speaking about the Quran and the Bible. Uh, this is interesting for us as a theology department at Notre Dame, of course, the, of course, a Catholic university, um, and to think about uh, the role of the church in evangelization and proclamation, but also the role of the church in dialogue. Um, so I just wonder if you have thoughts or experiences about that through your own show or um, in, in life, um, how, you, how you strike a balance, do, do you seek to make a balance, how do evangelization yeah. and dialogue go together? I think it's really helpful to begin with what we agree with. Uh, if you begin right out of the gate with what we disagree about, that's not a great way to begin a dialogue. I think in good faith, we can acknowledge what is true, good, and beautiful in other religions and say, oh, I really like how this is expressed or this is a lovely sentiment. You know, for example, I'm very impressed with my Muslim friends who are so committed to prayer you know, in a way that many Catholics aren't, and fasting in a way that many Catholics aren't. And I can right. acknowledge the goodness there, right? but never at the expense of religious indifferentism. I think Muslims must convert to Christianity in order to be saved. I think Jews must convert as well. And I think it's patronizing to pretend that Christians don't expect that. Now, they can disagree with that, and we can continue the discussion. Um, but I think both beginning with what we agree with and then being realistic about our differences and the fact that if two things contradict, both can't be true. The Catholic Church certainly encourages us to think about both proclamation and interreligious dialogue. Francis has been um, really invested in forming relationships with Muslims, especially not only, but you know, he was in Abu Dhabi uh, with... Um, with the uh, Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, um, Ahmed Al-Tayyib, and uh, they uh, wrote, uh, signed the, the Human Fraternity document. Um, so that's a, yeah, that is a big, a big challenge. And of course, Francis has also um, asked the church to be a missionary church. So um, a continue, continued, uh, a source of continued reflection and challenge. Matt Fred, it has been so great having you on Mining Scripture. Thank you so much for your time, and it's it's just it's just a pleasure for me personally, but I think for all of our listeners, it's really cool. So thank you. Yes, nice to talk with you. Friends, thank you for joining us, and be sure to be with us for the next episode of Mining Scripture, where divine word and human reason meet. Mm-hmm.